great. The revolution has begun. Um, as Flick's already said, we uh, began this series, this short series, last week. We're finishing it this week. So um, if you missed last week, I hope not to repeat too much of last week, except if you were here last week, and let's just delve back a tiny bit so that what I say makes sense to everyone. You know, if you w look at a Google map, um, it's, it's a really good thing when you pull out. You know, so I live on a little street just about a mile down the road, and I know, you know, both corners of my street and the street, a couple of streets behind and the street in front and where the bus stops, etc., etc. And there's the little park that I run around, etc. And that's what I know. And I can get stuck in that tiny picture. Am I going to get a different microphone already? Hey, there you go. There you go. Right. <laughs> Did anybody hear any of that? Yeah, right, good. So you can get stuck in a little picture of the world in which you live, my few streets. But when you can get on Google Maps now, which is a wonderful th thing, and you can zoom out, you can all, all of a sudden see the little place where you live in the context of everything else. If I see London in the context of the couple of streets that I live in, there's not much grass. Yesterday I went and did a wedding uh, for some friends of mine uh, at led a wedding and they live in a really leafy place there was grass everywhere and trees everywhere and Cornelia and I went a friend with a friend of ours and I actually said to him it's just fantastic to be out in so much grass but actually if you took a snapshot that little snapshot and you pushed it out into a big view google view you'd see that where I live in central London is just about as green as there. It's just if I get trapped into a tiny view of things, I don't see things properly. The same thing happens, doesn't it, when you climb to the top of a tall building. If you ever go out onto a tall building, onto the roof, and you look out across London, or if you've been on the London Eye for the few moments that it gets to the top of that uh, that. Um, that sequence that it does, you look out on London from that view, the bird's eye view, and you see things completely differently. And you work out that things are linked up and joined together that you've never thought were linked and joined together at all. That's what happens. Last week we discovered that when we think about our Christian faith, we tend to get stuck in a couple of streets with a couple of strands. And it's really hard to get the helicopter view, the bird's eye view, the Google view, to see everything and how it fits in. We began actually with an illustration of, I asked Flick to play one note from one song that we'd sung last Sunday morning. She played it and no one could guess what that note came from, which song. And then a chord and then two chords and then three chords and then four chords. And still no one could guess the song that those chords came from. And we tend to do that with our faith. We pick on a couple of Bible verses, a couple of big themes. We think they're big. We don't really know if they're big or small in context. And we make those themes everything. And those themes come to control us. Justification by faith is one of those. You've got to be justified by faith. I put to you, that it's actually not a big theme in the Bible, it's a tiny little theme. It is a theme, and it is important that it's there, but it fits into a much, much bigger theme. And we're going to talk about a little bit of that um, through 
uh, this morning. Thank you to Daryl for reading to us from Colossians chapter 2. I'm not going to refer to Colossians chapter 2 in a detailed way, but after you've listened to what I've got to say this morning, I'd like you to read Colossians chapter 2 again. Because I figure that if you read what Daryl read after taking on board what I've said, as long as you're listening, as long as you stick with it, then actually I think you'll go, ah, that's what Paul was on about. Why didn't anybody ever tell us that before? What we discovered last week is that all of the New Testament writers lived inside a story. In actual fact, we all live inside of stories. The, the, the um, kind of post-structuralists, the deconstructionists, the, um, uh, they used to, you know, the postmodernists, they used to call it a meta-narrative and all of that kind of thing. But the truth is, that's flash terminology for the fact that we all live with a whole lot of assumptions about life. A story we live in. We live in a story in our country, for instance, that we think home ownership's really important. Most of us can't afford home ownership, but it's a goal. You know, an Englishman in his or her home, that's part of our story. We live with a story that's deeply ingrained into us about money in the bank equals security in life. When in actual fact, all our common sense, if we think about it, tells us it doesn't at all. But we come to believe these things through sometimes very expensive educations that our parents have bought for us. We come to believe these, this great narrative about life. Paul lived... Paul and the other New Testament writers lived in a story, a story about what they believed about the world. Last week, I said this, that the primary message of Christianity is not about individuals being saved from sin and death and going to heaven and avoiding hell when they die. The New Testament is not about how you can say, what kind of prayer you can say to get saved and go to heaven when you snuff it. It's not about that. And it's not about how to avoid hell at all by saying that prayer. That's not the story of the New Testament. If you stuck the Apostle Paul or any of the other New Testament writers, or if you put Jesus here and fed that line back to them, that story, that set of assumptions, they just wouldn't. Trust me, they just would not know what we were talking about. It is utterly alien to the New Testament. It's utterly alien to the culture in which Jesus lived and talked and walked. And therefore, the culture in which Paul and the other New Testaments lived and walked because they were, in the end, of course, or first and foremost, followers of Jesus. They lived in a different story. And their story was simply this, that God had chosen Israel, not because of anything they'd done, anything they deserved. God had chosen Israel at the beginning of history. Some of you were around when we did the series on Genesis, all those pre-history stories, you know, those great myths and legends that are poured into the beginning of the Bible to teach great principles. Before I said, history starts with Abraham. 
Abraham, that's history. All the stuff that goes before is legends that are about great truths, principles by which we live our lives. So starts the story of Abraham, who sets out from Ur, who sets out from the great superpower of the day, uh, Babylon. He sets out to walk with this God of love, God of everyone, and God of everything that he's discovered, whose name is Yahweh. He follows him, and God, Yahweh, speaks to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the beginning of history in the Bible, and says, I will bless you as you follow me, and this blessing will be for all the people everywhere. Everyone gets blessed. So build a, through you I'll build a people to bless all the peoples of the earth. And that's the story of the beginning of Israel. And Israel is built, but then things go wrong. And there's another superpower that arrives, and they're called the Egyptians. And the people of Israel end up in slavery for 400 years, groaning in slavery. And then God, through Moses, sets them free. It's called the Exodus, as you know. And to this day, the Jews celebrate that as the greatest event in their history. The Exodus. We were redeemed. That's important because every Jew on the planet when Jesus was around and every Jew on the planet today believes that they are redeemed. It's not something that might happen to them in the future if they pray a prayer, if they have enough faith, if they get it right. They just say, we are the redeemed. We've been re- it's a historical fact. It happened. We are redeemed. We have been saved. We're just like living it out now. But then stuff began to go wrong again. And there was another superpower that arose called Babylon. And they raided Jerusalem and they crushed it. And they crushed the people of Israel. And they took them into slavery, the exile. And the people prayed that God would do again what he'd done before. Do it again, do it again, do it again. Because they were living in a story. And then finally they were allowed to come back to Israel and rebuild Jerusalem. But they knew that God had only partially done it. Because they were back in Jerusalem, and they were out of Babylon, and they had a temple, but they didn't really feel that they were free, because the Greeks were now their bosses. And then they had a small slither, a window of freedom, under a guy called Judas Maccabees and all his friends. You'll have to read about those in Catholic Bibles, because they kept those books in and we've not got them. And then that freedom disappeared, and the Romans rocked up. Augustus and etc etc so the Jews were back home but not free and so they kind of felt we're kind of free but we're not free because we're still living under a superpower and they longed for God to do the exodus again do it again do it again do it again so when Jesus rode in Jerusalem on that little donkey and all the people cried Hosanna Hosanna means, you know, Hosanna Palm Sunday message. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us, save us, save us. Because they knew they were still locked in. And they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, which meant the king, the liberator. And they believed that finally the Messiah who would free them and do the exodus again, a new Moses, had come. 
They were all living in a story. And the story was a great story. We're saved, we're redeemed, we're God's people. It's not about what we do or think or how we pray or the words we put together. It's not about our works. It's not about any stuff we do. It's about what God's done for us. Do it again, God. Do it again. Do it again. And so they're waiting. Hosanna, save us. So Paul, it turns out, as you know, is like a Jewish teacher. He knows this stuff inside out. This is the story he lives in all his life. And he's waiting for this Messiah to come. And he's heard about Jesus. But Jesus can't be the Messiah because instead of freeing them from the Romans, he went and got crucified. He was dead. Can't believe in a dead Messiah. You need a live Messiahs, conquering Messiahs. And then Paul, well Saul, he's called at that point, because he's a Pharisee and a very good Pharisee, you know, he's like, that's what he says of himself. He, um, he's on this journey to Damascus to wipe out a small group of followers of this false Messiah called Jesus who died. He's going to wipe them out because you need pure Judaism, because we've got to maintain our story. And he gets knocked off his horse in this incredible encounter with Jesus. And he hears, hears the voice of Jesus saying, what, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's completely revolutionized in that moment. And he goes away. And as we've said, he spends years thinking through what does this mean? Because he hears the voice of Jesus and he knows Jesus has conquered death. And he knows that's what the Messiah, the liberator is supposed to do. But Jesus has conquered death in the wrong way by dying himself and rising from the dead. And he's created freedom not by slaughtering people but by loving people. And it messes with his head and he has to rewrite the whole story of Israel inside his head. And he comes up with this new story in which he lives. And so what Paul believes, and all the other New Testament writers, I always say Paul because he wrote most of the letters, you know, and uh, they all believe we're in this story and God's moving through Israel to, to work with the whole world and it's not just for Jews, it's for everyone, it's for absolutely everyone and there should be no barriers. That's what um, Paul's story is about. But the story went wrong in the lives of lots of the Jews. There's stories that go wrong in our lives. This is a story. I, I was watching the TV last night. I, w- I went out to this wedding, got in, and I ca- caught the last few minutes of the last night of the proms. Did anybody watch the last night of the proms? <laughs> yeah, it, it's okay. You know, it's one of those things, you know, you go, well, you think, I'm in this place, I can't confess to watching the last night of the proms. Did anyone <laughs> did, yeah, put up your hand, be bold? Did you watch the last night of the proms or listen to it or go to it? Or did you go to some of the other proms? Yeah, hey, loads of you, you see, there you are, tease them out. So anyway, last night, last night of the proms, it's, it's, um, there they are in the Royal Albert Hall, and uh, they always sing this, you know, play and sing the same songs, Elgar's uh, thing and, um, and the work, and uh, <laughs> Pomp and Circumstance. And you see, I know, I was just trying to say Elgar's thing, you know, but I, I you know. Pomp and circumstance and the words that were put to it, or at least to uh, uh, one stanza of it, uh, 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 by uh, Benson. And here are those words that are really well known. 
land of hope and glory, mother of the free, how shall we extol thee, um, who are born of thee? Wider still and wider shall thy bounds be set. God who made thee mighty, make thee mightier yet. God who made thee mighty, make thee mightier yet. And the Royal Albert Hall and people in Hyde Park, I'd just driven past Hyde Park actually earlier, they're all waving their union jacks everywhere. And then, uh, then the conductor says, let's sing it again. And they all cheer and everybody bounces up and down like this as they sing, land of hope and glory, mother of the free. It's offensive, isn't it? It's deeply offensive stuff. Do you know when it was written? It was written in 1902 just before the First World War, when the British Empire was at its height. It was written in the same year, actually, that Cecil Rhodes, Rhodesia, Cecil Rhodes died. And do you know what Cecil Rhodes, great name from the British Empire, left all his money to? The ex he left all of his money, every last penny of it, to the extinct to the extension of the British Empire around the world, whatever it cost. Land of hope and glory, mother of the free. <laughs> well, but in 1902, it was a story that everyone lived in, that's the point. It was a set of assumptions, a story that they lived in. You see, it's ever so easy to look back on history and kind of laugh at the stories that we believed a hundred years ago of ourselves. It's harder to see the stories we live in now and the things we believe. But that story was believed. But it was wrong. The problem was that the story that some Jewish people believed had all gone wrong. And what, G and what the New Testament is about is putting that story right. Is putting that story right. And all of Paul's energy and effort, all of his traveling, all of his writing, all of his arguing, all of his debating, it's all about how you put that story right. So, what did Paul and the other New Testament writers believe? Paul wrote, a little letter to those Christians in Colossae that um, we had read to us, Daryl read to us. What he believed was two things. That Jesus, even though he died, was the Messiah, the liberator of the whole of Israel. But he believed something else. And it was in the prayer that Flick led us in. Because we all sang, uh, Christ have mercy, uh, curie eleison. And we, all, uh, and we all sang, Christ have mercy. Christe eleison. And you probably think, well, what do those words mean? Well, they both leap out of what Paul wrote. But Christe didn't mean Christ as we understand it at all, actually. Funnily enough, Paul uses a different word for what we mean as Christ, and it's curiae, which means Lord. Paul had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and he used the Greek word Christ for that. He came to believe that Jesus was the liberator of Israel, the returner of Israel to their true story. And at last, the story of Israel is going to be fulfilled. But he came to believe that in fulfilling that story, it was for everyone, not just Jews, not just something private and personal for them. It was for everyone in the whole world of every color and every race and every creed. Everyone was in. No one was out. 
And he believed this, that just as the Jews had always believed they were in, you, you think about what I'm going to say. I'm going to say a big thing right here that you need to go away and think about. He came to believe that just as all the Jews, every last one of them, believed they were always in. No Jew ever said, how do I join God's people? Well, you were born, you're in. No Jew ever said, how do I stay in God's people? Well, you're a Jew, you're in it. You've got to stay in it. You were, you're in it and there's nothing you can do about it. It was a gift of God. We are the people of God. We are redeemed. We are saved. We are special. We are chosen. And how do I get to stay in? <laughs> Just keep breathing. All Jews live with a certainty that they were in. The question of how do I get in, what prayer do I pray, how do I behave, how do I act, what do I have to do, do I have to say, forgive me, uh, in the right formula, with the right intensity of our men on the end, all of this was just irrelevant. You were God's person if you were a Jew. And Paul came to believe that the life and teaching of Jesus meant that Jesus was not only the fulfillment of the Jewish story, but he was the Lord of all creation. In fact, if you read any of his, his letters to his mates, that's what he's saying all the time. He says, I am an apostle by grace of Jesus, the Messiah. He says words like this all the time. Jesus, who is Lord? Do you know why he's saying that? Because the Caesar <laughs> was the emperor, was Lord, and claimed to be Lord of the whole known world the superpower now being Rome. And Paul is saying, no, Jesus is Lord of the whole world. He is both the Messiah and the Lord, and we live in this story, and all people are God's people. So how do you get in? You just are in, because you are God's people. It's not about how you pray. So, you see, the New Testament isn't about how you get to go to heaven when you die. It's about how God blesses the whole earth and we are in. But our question is, how do we live like we're in instead of looking like we're out even though we are in? Does that make sense? How do we stop behaving like people living under other stories? And how do we start living like we're in the story of the kingdom of God? You are in because of God, not because of your faith. You're in. We are in because we're human. That's what Paul is teaching. And he's saying, so now live like it. Live like it. Live that way. Um, so, here's a question. The question is, if we're all in this story, there's two questions that arise. Um, but the first one is, you know, well, I thought that that becoming a Christian was about going to heaven when you die. I thought, I thought, are you telling me it's not about going to heaven when I die? Answer, yes. I am saying exactly that. There is no thought in the New Testament about people pushing off to some place up there when they snuff it. It's a totally Western idea that has so penetrated our thinking, we actually can't read the Bible without those filters and lenses on. 
and it's confusing. Now, here's this word. We've talked about it a little bit the last couple of weeks. I've done that deliberately. Perusia. Some of you will know, ah, Jesus, Perusia, his second coming. You know, that gets translated in Christian thought as Jesus' second coming. So, the thing is this. The thing is this. Where does heaven fit in and all of that kind of thing? Well, Paul and the other New Testament writers, they talk a lot about the Prusia, Jesus' second coming. That's the word. But in actual fact, everybody knew what a Prusia was. A Prusia was when some big official, the emperor or one of his chief lieutenants, rocked up. Do you know, in 122, Hadrian, the emperor, visited, do you know, Hadrian the Emperor, the Roman Emperor, came to England. You know that, don't you? Uh, things have been going badly here in, in, in England for the, for the Romans. So Hadrian the Emperor actually rocked up himself. And in all of the records we have of Hadrian's visit to Britain, it talks about Hadrian's Perusia. Hadrian came here. Uh, Perusia really means appeared because he was the emperor already. This was part of the Roman Emperor empire we were part of the roman kingdom he just appeared and in his appearing you see what's absolutely true you know when he got here he had this great idea you know he walked around saw stuff and hadrian said hey i've got an idea we're going to build a wall (laughs) we're going to build a big wall it's going to be the best wall ever (laughs) and guess what the barbarians are going to pay for it. That's what they're going to (laughs) do. There's nothing new in history. That's exactly what Hadrian did when he arrived. Built walls. We've still got it. It's now a tourist attraction, as you know. But the point is that in all the writing about this visit, Hadrian's, they talk about Hadrian's Perusia. The, the Bible talks about Perusias quite a lot, and it talks normally about people just turning up. But when it gets applied to Jesus, we've got this whole thing. Jesus is going to wrap up history, and we're all going to disappear, and some people are going to be caught up, and we're going to follow him in the sky, and other people are going to be left behind, and it's really terrible. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's what Tim LaHaye taught. There's a big difference. What the Bible says is this. That there's a story. And it's a story of how God blesses everyone. And in the end, that story is going to reach completion with a new heaven and a new earth. Things are going to be renewed here, as everywhere. And of course, the other great song that they sang at the last night, The Proms, um, which I I really do like, is um, Jerusalem. They always sing Jerusalem uh, by William Blake. Because William Blake understood it. Until we built new Jerusalem here. Amongst the dark satanic meals. It's all wrong. It ain't the way it should be. The story's not complete. But one day, the new Jerusalem, the new earth is going to be built here. So that's what it's about. So heaven, it's not a place we're going to go. It's a place that's here. But it's also a dimension. A dimension. God is in in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. Well, if our Father is in heaven now, well... 
Where is heaven? Because God is really close. Not God's not distant. God's closer to each one of us than the person sitting next to us. So if God's here and God's in heaven, then heaven must be a dimension of life. And what the Bible is saying is that heaven is a dimension. And the word parousia talks about appearing. It doesn't mean coming, actually. It just means appearing. Everybody was in Hadrian's kingdom already. It's just that he appeared. But that was already true. The dimension of heaven is here in London. And it is all around us. It's in your home, in your workplace. But our job is to live in it instead of in denial of it. Our job is to actually be the people that we're called to be instead of living in denial of who we're called to be. So, one last question. And what I've said, I'm sure, raises many more questions than it answers. Because it's like that in life, isn't it? What I'm supposed to do is put stuff out there for you so you go away and Google. I mean, you know, and think and read and, you know, etc., etc. Here's the thing. Paul wasn't anti-Jew. I hope I've communicated that now. In fact, if you read his biggest letter, which is this book to the Romans, he, t- he talks in the first few verses about how Jesus is from the line of King David. If he was abandoning Judaism to start Christianity, why on earth did he do that? If you read through Romans, he's constantly talking about King David and Abraham and Moses, etc. Why does he do that if he's trying to abandon Judaism? No, he's not. He's not come to start a thing called Christianity. He's come to continue the story that God's come and everyone's in and everyone counts. So if I'm saying everyone's in, because I'm sure that's what Paul's saying, then where does faith fit in? I thought we were saved by faith. Well, the truth is this, that if you read lots of theology, people are always saying, tell you what to read. So let me tell you what to read. Right, This will bore you out your brains. There's a guy called um, Ed Sanders. uh, E.P. Sanders. uh, Sanders. S-A-N-D-E-R-S. Ed Sanders. He wrote a book in 1977. So what I'm saying is not like new. And it's called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. So if you want to read more about this, read Ed Sanders, Paul in Palestinian Judaism. It changed the whole way in which New Testament scholarship thought about Paul. And some of you read books by Tom Wright? Yeah, you've heard of Tom Wright, N.T. Wright? Tom is just an echo of Ed Sanders. Tom wouldn't, if you're listening to this, please forgive me for saying you're just an echo of Ed Sanders. has brought loads of stuff to the debate, but this guy, Ed Sanders, um, starts it. And he says, look, Paul's not against Judaism, and it's not like these people were trying to get to heaven by doing good things, and Paul's against doing good things. Paul tells us all the time, do not murder, do not lie, do not cheat, live this way. Jesus said, when you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. So actually, it does matter how we live, doesn't it, all the time. So why, why are we reading in Paul about it's not by works, it's by faith. When it's clearly by works, 
Paul says all the time, what you do is being added up. There's going to be a testing and a judgment. Paul says, live this way. Be gentle and kind and loving and compassionate. Liars and cheats have no part in what God's doing. So what we do, it's not about praying some prayer. Oh, I prayed this prayer so I can do whatever I like and I can cheat on my tax and do what I like with my money and I'm going to go to heaven anyway. Well, do you see what a vacuous story that all is? Paul's not against... um, doing good things with your life but certain Jews had come to believe that there were certain things that made them more special when um, about 20 years ago um, a friend of mine told me that he got he got married and um, he got married and he was telling me about his wife's family and um, he said to me he said it's really funny he said um, he said I'm loving being married he'd been married about a year and he said I'm loving being married but he said Every Sunday, you know, they used to always have a beef joint, you know. And he said, every Sunday, and my wife loves doing the cooking, you know. But every Sunday, she lops off the ends of, she gets the joint, and she chops both ends off. And she lays them side by side, and we put the joint in the oven like that. And I say to her, why would you do it? And she says, well, that's how you cook a joint, and it tastes better. And he said... I just used to think this was really weird because it's not my, the way my mum did it. And then he said, we went and had Sunday lunch with her mum. And her mum locked off both ends of this thing, put it in the oven and cooked it. And I said, why'd you do it? And she said, well, it's the way you do it. It, it looks good and it tastes good. It tastes good. And he said to me, he said, the funny thing is, um, he said, a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> he said, we went and we had a meal with... Um, my wife's grandmother. And she chops off the ends of the joint and she stuffs it in the oven. And so I said, he tells me, he said, I said to my wife's grandmother, why do you do that? And she says, oh, it's this stupid thing. She said, it doesn't make it taste any better. It's just, it, she said, it's just that when I was growing up, my mum had a very narrow oven. <laughs> Do you see how something becomes bigger than itself and it becomes, it gets twisted and we come to hold on to that thing though it's lost all meaning? The Jews did circumcision and they had some dietary laws and they kept the Sabbath. These weren't ways of ever earning God's favor. They were just in. They knew they were in. They were God's people. And because God had blessed them, they had these little ways of remembering. They were mementos. They were kind of post-it notes for them. They were ways of remembering all the good stuff that God had done for them. They were just like family things you do. You know, like you have little family habits at Christmas when you give out the presents and how many you put on the tree and what you do on holiday. And every time we go away, we love playing Cluedo or whatever. You know, the big thing in life is you do all those but then what gets wrong is when you force everybody else to play Cluedo or do Christmas when they join your family or do, do you see and families fall over, out over those things it's those little mementos those little ways of doing things become the law and everybody forgets why they're done that's what happened to some Jews They'd always been chosen. They'd always been saved. They were saved. They were always God's people. But they'd started, and then they'd had the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments, etc., as little mementos. We're in, and we celebrate that we're in in these ways. But these little rules had taken over. 
And as the rules taken over, they became this deadly code. And deadly codes lead to exclusion. There's a family over there that doesn't do it our way, so they're not in. Whereas Paul was saying, we're all in. And Jesus was saying, we're all in. And John was saying, we're all in. For God so loved the whole world. For God so loved the whole world. So, the question is this. How are you going to live in the line of this big story? This is the revolution. Bono wrote these words in 2006. It was after the a bomb went off on a Saturday afternoon in the small, tiny little town of Omar, killing 26 people, injuring over 200 others. The continuity IRA, frightful of the peace process breaking out, determined to recreate boundaries. They love boundaries, so they blew, blew a bomb. And Bono wrote these words. The song was published in 2006, but he, he wrote these words, he says, after that. Heaven on earth, we need it now. I'm sick of all of this hanging around. Sick of the sorrow, sick of the pain. Sick of hearing again and again, there's never going to be peace on earth. I thought last night, wouldn't it be good if they sang that in the Royal Albert Hall? Wouldn't it be good if they scrapped, you know, land of hope and glory? And this has got a bit more realism to it, hasn't it? Heaven on earth, we need it now. And we're only going to get it if we all live in this story. Everyone is loved by God. God has chosen humanity. Who is chosen? Who is elect? Humanity. God is the God of love. And he calls us to work wherever we are, with whoever we are, to tell that story. We are in. But when we live as though we're in the story, we live better and we taste heaven on earth and we see God's goodness in our life. And when we live as though we're out of the story, we inherit crap. We inherit bad stuff. When we live as though we're not in the story of heaven coming to earth, when our personal morality and our political ethics and our societal way of thinking uh, becomes self-centered and individualistic everything breaks down but when we live as though we are in this fantastic story of the kingdom of God everything is good heaven on earth we need it now I'm sick of all of this hanging around sick of the sorrow sick of the pain sick of hearing and again and again there's never gonna be peace on earth but Paul believed there would be peace on earth because he believed that Jesus was the Messiah and the Christ and living his way changes stuff so this week how are you gonna live what are you gonna live for are you gonna live with the dimension of heaven in your life or are you gonna blot it out Are you going to live with the dimension of heaven in your life with your friends and your family and back at work? I don't know your circumstances. I don't know the tough situation you're facing. I don't know what it is that seems to be like pulling you down at the moment. But actually, by living inside this great story, the world is changed. There are no boundaries. That's what Paul is saying. Throw away all your boundary markers, your Sabbath keeping and all that. They're all Don't rely on them. Rely on the redemption that God brings to every life because we're in his story. We're going to sing and we're going to sing one song as we finish. And it's an old hymn, Amazing Grace. Um, There's only one thing wrong in my view 
Uh, is it Amazing Grace we're going to sing? No, it's not. What did you tell me we were going to sing? Okay. Uh, okay. Oh, I, okay. We're not going to sing Amazing Grace. I thought we were going to sing Amazing Grace. We're going to sing instead a song that Dan Dalman wrote about tearing down the boundary walls because that's what this message is all about. So I invite you to stand. And as we sing, ask, how am I going to live within this story this week? As we sing as well, we're going to take our morning offering. Please give generously because it's giving to the story of redemption for everyone.